Okay, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, which will take you to that passage. The page number, if you're using the Pew Bible, is page 54. We're going to begin with that. Today we're talking about the Sabbath. Before we get started, I think I should take you through the article that's on the back side of this, because as we move into the Easter season, it is worth thinking a little bit about what we mean by that and why it's important and how our approach to it may differ a little bit from some others. This is the time of year when there's a great deal of celebration of spring, equinox and other things, which is good. I think it's good to celebrate spring winters over. Well, sort of. And it's a good thing to celebrate that we're still here. People all over the world and all of history have done that. But there's a special reason that we as Christians celebrate at this time of year. It's in addition to that, greater than, but not less than, celebrating that. So Understanding Easter is an article in uh, your bulletin, and I wish to uh, read that. Easter is the time of year when Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. While all the events of Jesus' life are significant, Jesus' death and resurrection are foundational to God's redemption plan. Celebrating Easter is not mandated in the Bible, so it is not an ordinance like communion or baptism, but it is a good opportunity to focus on the defeat of sin and death that the cross and resurrection represent. The word Easter is not a biblical word, so some prefer Resurrection Sunday instead. Eggs and bunnies are not directly connected to Jesus' resurrection, but do celebrate spring and new life. All four Gospels contain the story of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Palm Sunday remembers the day he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds calling him king. Maundy Thursday remembers the Passover feast that became the Last Supper. Good Friday commemorates the day that he actually died on the cross, and Sunday is Easter or Resurrection Sunday, thereby completing Holy Week. Crucifixion, the method of Jesus' death, was a form of capital punishment that the Romans, who ruled Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, adapted from the Persians. It was reserved for those who were not Roman citizens and was done in public to warn others. While the Bible reports the physical pain of the cross, it also focuses on Jesus' agony at being identified with sin and thereby alienated from the Father. The early Christians celebrated the resurrection weekly on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on that day. That is why the day of rest, that is the Sabbath concept for Christians, is usually associated with Sunday, the first day of the week, rather than Saturday, and is called the Lord's Day. The reason for making it a special annual event is that the Jews already celebrated Passover in the spring and the European pagans celebrated spring itself with holidays already on the calendar. Prior to A.D. 325, different Christian communities celebrated Easter at different times. In that year, the Council of Nicaea issued the Easter rule, fixing the annual resurrection celebration based on the moon and and the spring equinox. So now Easter is always on a Sunday between the dates of March 22 and April 25. Eastern Orthodox Christians still use a different date, and the Jewish Passover is also governed by the moon. 
but can fall on any day of the week so long as it's the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. I mentioned the uh, Jewish Passover because if you'll remember from the Lord's Supper, uh, Matthew 26 is, a, is one place that the explanation for that is contained. That was the Passover feast where Jesus took the bread and he took the wine and he said, this is now my body. This is now my blood. I'm transferring the symbolism of the Passover to me and what I'm doing for you. So that is predates, the Passover predates the uh, experience of the Lord's Supper for the early church. Now let's go to the Sabbath concept, which is the fourth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. I got a question for you. How many of you grew up in a context in which you were not allowed to do certain things on Sunday? Yeah, me too. We always did them anyway, mostly when the parents weren't looking, but uh, that's uh, anybody that grew up in a Christian community, in our case, my wife and I grew up in a Dutch community. Sunday was a, far, it was a farming community, but the milking always had to take place. Uh, but there were certain things that were proscribed. Uh, that means you could not do all of these. Entertainment was certainly one of the things that you were not supposed to do. It was a good day to read the Bible or mostly to pretend you're reading the Bible and uh, read devotional literature. And eventually, when television uh, came along in conservative communities, religious communities, a lot of times television wasn't allowed on on Sunday as well. Uh, so if you've got any of that background or know stories about it, you know from a Christian background culture, this was a big feature of it, but not just Christian, Jewish. And by the way, it's not just in Christian cultures that a day set aside as a holy day exists. It's a pattern worldwide. In fact, Sunday is fast becoming, not receding, but fast becoming worldwide a day when people set aside all business activities. And even in the atheistic countries like the Soviet Union and China, uh, they set days of the week when business didn't take place was a normal part of it. And that's because the cycle of seven and multiples of seven is sort of built in to the physical world. The solar or the lunar month is 28 days plus some variations. And uh, the cycle of seven is not just because of the biblical term, but it's quite built into the creation, the physical world we live in. Nobody has succeeded in avoiding that. And I don't know of any cultures that currently uh, do the cycle of less or of different than seven days. The French Revolution had an interesting experiment. They wanted to separate themselves from their Christian background. So uh, they were so committed to that that they, went, they tried a 10-day cycle. It didn't really work. I've heard of other, but mostly even in Islamic cultures, the cycle is a seven-day cycle, but the Sabbath for Islam, of course, is, uh, is Friday, and for Jewish cultures, it's Saturday, and uh, that cycle continues in those cultures. It's a built-in concept. I was recently uh, intrigued by a uh, statement from the Pope, Pope Francis, and this is one, by the way, that President Obama actually referred to uh, recently, just this last year, 
This is what he had to say while speaking in the White House. On Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation, whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. It also proclaims man's eternal rest in God. In this way, Christian spirituality incorporates the value of relaxation and festivity. We tend to demean contemplative rest as something unproductive and unnecessary. But this is to do away with the very thing which is most important about work, its meaning. We are called to include in our work a dimension of receptivity and gratuity which is quite different from mere inactivity. Rather, it is another way of working, which forms part of our very essence. It protects human action from becoming empty activism. It also prevents the unfettered greed and sense of isolation, which make us seek personal gain to the detriment of all else. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day, so that your, quote, Exodus 23, your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest centered on the Eucharist sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. Now you don't hear me quote the Pope very often, but... That's a good quote because it's a great summary of the purpose of the Sabbath concept. Whether it's the Lord's Day or any other day, Sunday, first day of the week, is which for Christians it has always been uh, historically because of the association with the resurrection of Jesus, that it is also a social economic justice pattern. I think if you will look at the pattern in our society, in our own communities. If you shop on Sundays, that's probably not a bad thing or a good thing. But I suggest that you will notice that the people who work on Sundays are the lowest end of the economic scale people. The management, they're all playing with their expensive toys on the lake or the ocean. They're flying around or doing other stuff or uh, whatever they do. People who can afford to don't work on Sundays. And if you've ever been in retail or any of the things that are affected by the nonstop, the 24-7 economic craving of the American system as it has evolved, not as it used to be, but as it has evolved, if you are a participant in that, you will notice, or if you've ever worked in retail or restaurants, you will have noticed that the lowest end of the scale people always get the holidays and the weekends to work on. That's the starting position. I've done this. I've One of my several jobs from the past has been working in retail. So I know this from experience. This is what you get. So the economic justice aspect of this I want to lay out here at the beginning. This is not a religious proscription. It is a justice principle that God built in to the Ten Commandments. And this is what it says in verse 8. 
Remember the Sabbath day. So this is number four of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your manservant, or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that was in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We can stop there because that's uh, the longest of the Ten Commandments uh, in terms of its uh, literary expression. But uh, the points that are being made there are important. The first three of the Ten Commandments had to do with God and our relationship with God. And the last six have to do with our relationship with other people. The fifth is going to be about family. And then after that, the stealing, the killing, and all these other things are going to be in that cycle. But the first three have to do with God, and this is a transitional hinge. Here, God is saying, I want you as an individual and as a culture, a society, to place your work, your productivity, and nature in perspective. And here is how you do it. You take a day, a week, to do Nothing except appreciate God, God's people, God's nature, and meditate on things that are not related to the work of your own hands. I think we suffer from, well, I like the way Chuck Swindoll put it. We tend to worship work, work at play, and play at worship. I think there's some truth to that. This is, uh, you, I don't think you can escape this just by having a different economic system. In fact, the experiments with socialism and communism have been quite the opposite. The least just places in history have been those countries that have been ruled by those systems. So that's not the answer either. He's suggesting here, God is suggesting here, this is a human nature issue. You intentionally stop and think, about what you're doing, what your life is doing, where you're going with your life, and you do other things at least one day a week, at least one day a week. Now, C.S. Lewis has in his book, what is that called? Screwtape Letters. Has the devil proposing that uh, if you can't get them to disobey God, make them extreme. I think the Sabbath is an example of that. I asked you earlier if you grew up with these kind of rules. Some of you did and some of you didn't. It's kind of generational now in, in our society. But uh, the problem with the way this has often been applied is that it becomes a religious chain around the neck. Some sort of religious bondage or you have to do it a certain, you've got to have it certain hours of the day. You may be familiar with different denominations of Christians who well, Seventh-day Adventists, written right into the name, would be one illustration where it's very important for them to have sundown Friday to sundown Saturday as the Sabbath. And if you don't do it that way, you're violating the Sabbath rule, the Sabbath law. In fact, in that particular denomination, they have a teaching that this is going to be the mark of the beast, not obey in the end times, not obeying the Sabbath. Sunday worship is going to... 
In fact, if you do a little Googling search on this, you will notice that several people with that point of view have been publishing shrieking articles about, this is it, Revelations 13, Sunday worship made law is the mark of the beast. It's supposed to be Saturday. I think Satan wins. When you get fixated on the technicality, you got a problem. You're religious, but you don't know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you know that the principles behind all of these laws are built into who we are and how God created us, but the technicality is a technicality for the theocratic kingdom of Israel. It was their law. To us, it's a principle. To them, it's a law. Now, I mentioned Seventh-day Adventists, but they're not the only ones. And maybe even a home you grew up in, Baptist or Mennonite. The early Mennonite colonies were really strong on this subject. You could get excommunicated for reading a newspaper or riding a bicycle on Sunday instead of just religious literature. And that's because they made a legalism out of a principle. That's not the point. And I think the devil wins when that happens. So consequently, you have Christians who say, we're saved by grace and not by law, so therefore none of this means anything. Come on. Can we look for God and his character and the principle behind it and apply them to our lives instead of saying, well, if I don't have to keep that law, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to do the exact opposite. It's called the lunatic fringe reasoning. They're lunatics, so I'm going to be a lunatic on this side, and therefore we'll even it out to being cool. That's not intelligent or spiritual reasoning. And I think that this is maybe one of the most important laws in terms of a society's structure because it gave it to them as a law. It gives it to us as a principle of human nature and community how we are supposed to live. Just an aside on the Hebrew there, Shabbat is what that's called. So if you ever hear any Hebrew people talking about this, this is what you'll be, they'll be referring to. So the other passage I would like us to look at today before we get to the takeaways, Genesis 2, verse 1 to 18, page 2 in your Bible. Everybody's Bible, I'm going to assume this time, because Genesis 2 tends to be on page 2 of the Bible. Start right at verse 1. First chapter, if you're not familiar, just a reminder, first chapter deals with the creation story, how God created the heavens and the earth, and the pattern, the days, and so on. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, is there anything about God that would make you think that he ran out of energy and he needed to rest? Is it possible that... God did this and had it recorded to show that as the creator, the owner and operator of the whole thing, that this is the best way for it to work, that he knows what it is. He built it right into the creation, right into nature, right into our lives, because man had already been created at that point in the cycle. But we backtrack a little bit as the story goes on. Verse 4. 
So this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. And Oregon wasn't invented yet. No rain on the earth. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow on the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The point of the story, recorded as it is, is really pretty simple. God did not create man in his own image, as per the first chapter's statement. Let us make man in our own image, so male and female created he them. He did not make them to do nothing. Work is not an invention of the evil government or the evil bosses or your bad, your nasty parents who made you work when you were growing up. It's the invention of God. God created us in his own image to produce, to create, to have initiative, creativity, and be active. The law of intended purpose. I like that expression because I think it... Uh, says a lot relative to daily life as well. You know what the law of intended purpose is, do you not? You have a big dog, a wolf even, and you keep it in your bedroom in your house or your trailer. That dog will get sick, mean, disgusting, and destructive. That dog was not intended to be your little pet in a locked up confined place because that dog doesn't work that way now there are dogs that work that way they only they've been bred to just be or their natural state to just be in small confined places and they do fine that way but there's an element of cruelty about people who make pets out of things that are not meant to be that way maybe you followed a little bit the um, the sea world drama about whales. Now having lived in the Pacific Northwest on the islands, um, we saw whales practically on a daily basis, orcas, because that's where their home is. Uh, a good several pods live right there. And so we're kind of familiar with that. Now there are some people who feel like it's just absolutely cruel to keep whales locked up in swimming pools. Now, I gotta say I kind of sympathize with that. 
I don't think that's an environmental wacko issue. I think there's an element of cruelty about animals that are meant to be out in the big ocean and swimming being locked up in a swimming pool so that you can play little games with them from time to time and, and look at them and go ooh and ah and get splashed and whatever it is people do there. I don't really, that's not the issue in itself. The issue is the law of intended purpose. There's an element of cruelty of making animals behave. Chickens in coops where there's hundreds of them in a tiny little yard by yard spot. That's right. That is a wrong way to treat animals because it's not, they're not intended to live that way. Whatever the concerns are and whatever political issues are associated with that, it is wrong to abuse animals in that way because it violates the law of intended purpose. Now this is the point here. The law of intended purpose with human beings is work and rest. Some people want to do nothing but rest. That's wrong too. Six days shalt thou labor, and the seventh is a day of rest. Those that want to work one day and rest six are violating God's plan as well. And there are quite a few people like that. It's not just rich entitled people, it's poor entitled people as well. It's a mindset. It's not totally connected to income either. It has to do with attitude. I want to be a productive, creative person because God made me to do that. And if you develop a mindset where your only interest is how can I get other people to work for me and give me their stuff, you damage yourself, you damage your community, you damage your church, you damage everything around you because it violates God's pattern. The law of intended purpose is laid out right at the beginning. The cycle of rest, pull back, enjoy creation, and work. Produce, be a part of it. God intended us to be a part of it. So now let's go to the takeaways for life. We have five principles that I'd like us to think about today. Number one, related to what we were just talking about. The law of intended purpose can't be violated with impunity. Be as creative and productive as God gives opportunity. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can do what others can do. It's the good faith effort that is going to be blessed by God. Number two, the Sabbath concept of rest and breaking the cycle of our own workings is built into creation. How's your Sabbath? Now, you might ask, and this is taken into account in the Hebrew law, the book of Leviticus, how do you do that, Dave? You've got to work on Sundays, right? That's right. I've got to work on Sundays. It's a really cool job because I only work one day a week. I've heard people say that. that uh, I think that uh, it isn't worth responding to anymore, but uh, uh, how do I do it? My Sabbath is Monday. If you can't get in touch with me on Monday, the reason is I'm out of touch. One guy told me one time in a restaurant, he said, you're either a preacher or a barber. You're, you're here on Mondays. <laughs> oh, hey, pretty smart dude. <laughs> uh, that's true. My Sabbath is a Monday. Marge and I have developed a pattern when we first started almost 40 years ago that um, we tried to take a day away. Not even talking to each other sometimes which is 
which is a Sabbath. You know, be alone, meditate. Nature, books, whatever. It's a way to unplug. Number three, takeaways for life. All work was sacred if dedicated to the glory of God. Who or what do you serve? Now, whether you are employed, retired, on disability, or something else, the point is what you do should be dedicated to God. God will bless it then, and you will be fulfilled spiritually. Last year, I was invited to participate in a panel discussion for seminary students up in Portland, and about five pastors, we were sitting up there, and they were asking us questions, and uh, one of the uh, students asked, uh, what do you do about the workload, the demand? How do you keep that in perspective? Well, my answer was the Sabbath principle does that. But one of the other guys said, but this is the Lord's work, so you've got to be prepared for the fact that you may work too much, but it's good work. Well, my problem with that is really simple. A workaholic is an addict. Whether it's drugs, work, religiosity, or anything else, a workaholic is an addict. It is self-fulfilling and self-worship. You can't say, but this is the Lord's work. I have to be a workaholic. Gordon MacDonald, in an autobiography, pointed out that one of the things that really puzzled him and got him off on a wrong path when he was a young man in seminary was all of the religious big shots that were brought to the seminary to talk to them and challenge them. And frequently they would talk about they hadn't been home in weeks and months serving Jesus. No, you lie. You're serving yourself. Because we all know that at home... They don't worship at your feet. When my wife says, Dave, why didn't you bring the garbage out yet? That puts me where I'm supposed to be. And when I'm up here, nobody says that to me. Wow, go figure. Workaholics in the religion world, or the spiritual world, or the church world, or the mission world, are no different than workaholics in any other field. If you're not serving Jesus, who are you serving? The devil? Your whole job, everything you do is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. I serve the Lord in this way. You serve the Lord in your way. The principles apply to you and to me and everybody. Nobody's exempt. I can't spiritualize God's commands away for me because I'm above that. I'm one of them there, priests or preachers or missionaries or something. That doesn't apply to me. That applies to you, commoners. Satan loves that way of thinking because it filters down. Everything you do, your job is serving God. If it isn't, stop serving the world, the flesh, and the devil and get serving God. It's an attitude. It's a focus, purpose. Number four. Regardless of income or reward considerations, are you a taker or a giver, a consumer or a producer in life? That's a mindset. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to unhook that from eight to five jobs or occupations. 
and say, however the source of income is, I am here to do useful things. I am here for a purpose. I plan to do it. If I'm retired or anything else isn't going to change that, I'm going to do it because God set me to that task because I am a human. And humans have a purpose, a law of intended purpose, and that is to produce and be creative in life. And number five, are you experiencing rest of spirit? The Sabbath rest of knowing your relationship with God is secure and right. Hebrews chapter 4 refers to the Sabbath in this way, talking about our relationship with God. The Sabbath in its application in the physical world is an important principle from God. But the principle of resting in Jesus for our relationship with God is very specifically drawn out in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. So where is your rest? Sometimes all of that busyness or that consumerism really comes from a vacuum of the soul. Trying to fill it, desperately trying to fill it with something. Busyness, stuff, possessions, entertainment. Just fill it. You don't have to fill it. If you just let God fill it. That's the relationship with God through Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit that we are privileged to enjoy. We can relax in life, find purpose and meaning, balance. Father, we are so grateful that we can serve you. But we know that our service to you is out of gratitude and love. We are not earning a relationship with you. You have given that through Jesus. We simply receive it. We rest in what Jesus did for us. Thank you for that. We give to you, too, the things that in our lives are out of balance. Work, Sabbath, rest. The ways of living in this world with justice, fairness. All of the things that matter to you. Show us how we can do our part and be the kind of people who represent your ways for living. 